Welcome to Teach Em Up, the podcast about teaching and learning. Today, we are talking about the art of teaching, teacher magic, with magical teacher Rob Watson. Rob, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, I don't know that I agree with the magical teacher, but uh, whatever it is, uh, it's a good time. It is a good time. I think you're looking especially sparkly today, so I think we're, we're ready and rocking. Doing what I can. Yeah. Okay. Um, so before we kind of get into what it is to have the art of teaching, um, what was your educational journey? How did you get into the teaching field and what has made you stay here? So this was never the fallback plan for me. This was never a backup. This was never, I got a history degree and then wondered, what do I do now? Uh, and sort of said, well, I guess I'll teach. This was always plan one. Uh, my mom was an English teacher. My sister's a social studies teacher. My dad taught bio for a year and a half before leaving the field. But um, I just, I loved school. I was good at it. Um, I, I was just a curious kid who enjoyed learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and school tended to be for me a place that um, met that need. And especially once I got, and I loved history, um, and once I got to high school, I had a sophomore honors world history teacher named Mr. Matthews who just got it. Mm-hmm. It was fun. And I thought, this is stupid that he gets paid for this, right? Like, he gets to talk about history and he just has a good time and he's hanging out with kids. And I was like, I want that. That looks great. Uh-huh. That's what I want to do. And so from that moment, I knew um, this was the gig for me. I never wanted what I still refer to as a real job because this is not a real job. This is um, me playing around with my passion and sharing that love of history and the content and the stories that I get to teach and talk about with kids. Uh-huh. And so um, I knew from you know ninth or tenth grade this is what I was going to do, and you know anything that I do in terms of that that X factor, that extra little spark is a poor imitation of what Mr. Matthews was doing for me. Mm -hmm. Good Lord. So many years ago. Yep. Right. And so I went through the rest of, of high school and I saved my notebooks from my high school history classes because I knew I'm going to need this someday. Um, and so I, I still have back in the closet, you know, my world history and U.S. history notebooks. I think I saved Gov. Uh-huh. I think I burned Econ. Um, <laughs> I didn't save any of the math or science ones. Those are all long gone. Um, but I went off to college sort of thinking like this was, it was teacher prep. Uh-huh. It wasn't just, oh, I'm going to be a professional historian. It was, no, I'm going to be a historian, but I'm going to work with kids that either they like it or they hate it or they just don't know that they like it yet. Uh-huh. Um, they just haven't been exposed to it in sort of the right way. Um, and so went through college, uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, you know, not a big history school, not that there are very many of those, um, those history powerhouses. Yeah. Those history powerhouses, Uh you know, Boston college and none other meet up for Uh, the international history Olympiad. Right. There was none of that. And so it was, but it was a great place to go to school. Uh, it was a great place to live. Um, and I liked that. I was sort of in a small major mm-hmm. surrounded by these these big majors. And it was sort of like, well, they matter, but here you are doing your history thing, uh-huh. right? It was science and agriculture, or engineering rather. Those are the architecture. Those are the ones that matter. And then here's you and your little liberal arts program, and that's yeah, cute. Isn't that cute? Have fun and talk about dead people and leave us alone. 
Um, and so I went through, I stayed there and got my credential, um, which was a, another time of just, I, I did a part-time student teaching at a middle school, and then I did my full-time rotation at the high school teaching sophomore history. Um, and this was also down in San Luis Obispo? At San Luis Obispo High, uh, with a legend of a teacher named Bob Huddle, who taught a English history core class. Uh-huh. Um, and it was just phenomenal. We actually for a while called it the Bob and Rob show because it was just, we had similar personalities, similar senses of humor, um, and sort of team tied a little bit before I took over. And what was neat about that, as opposed to the way that they do it up here, is that student teaching full time was truly full time. I took mm-hmm. over his entire schedule and I taught all five of his courses and he went over into a little book room next door and just kind of hung out and read his newspaper uh, and then checked in on me every once in a while. But, wow. it was a, but it was a great place and I really sort of went in and I had a lot of success with those kids. I, uh, and I don't know what it was, um, but we just sort of understood each other and, and it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I went in sort of thinking like, oh, I've, I've got this. I'm, I'm really good at this. Um, and then I went someplace else. My first job was uh, teaching at a high school of 3,600 kids in Southern California. Um, and I realized I, I was not good. Uh-huh. It was not a great year. It was that typical first year where it was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. What it worked in student teaching doesn't work now. That, that sort of passion wasn't carrying me very far. Uh, and it just... It was a struggle. And then I did a year of middle school, um, which was fun. I, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, uh, is the most I can say about it. Uh, <laughs> and then I ended up here when we sort of decided to get out of the smog and the traffic of Southern California. Uh-huh. Um, and it's been great. Nice. And how long have you been teaching history at San Marin High School now? So I've been at San Marin for 13 years. Um, so 15 years total. 15 years in the classroom, getting paid to do this not real job. Um, and it's a blast. I'm having more fun in high school now, I think, than I did when I was in it. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's way easier to have more fun in high school as a teacher because <laughs> being in high school as a student sucks. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, that was one of my inspirations for being a high school teacher was I really disliked being a student in high school. Like, I liked the school part, yeah. but the social part was, like, terrible and awkward. And, uh, yeah, so now being able to come back as a teacher and do it right and try to make life better for um, all of these kids going through a terribly awkward yeah. uh, time yeah. is a great opportunity. For sure. Um, I think it's so funny that you mentioned like holding on to your high school history notebooks because I did the exact same thing, but for my calculus right. uh, class in high school and my like introduction to biology in college and some of the like earthquakes classes that I took in college, yeah. uh, I was like, these, these feel good. Yeah. I bet these are gonna be useful someday. Um, and I will say I have not looked at them like at all, except no. I got to take one out last year um, when my AVID class was graduating because they're seniors going off to college. And we just kind of talked through what does it look like really taking a lecture class yeah. in uh, college? And like, what do your notes look like? And how do you actually organize them to kind of keep it useful for yourself? Yeah, and so the only time I think I, I, I saved all my college notes for any class, I've got them in binders, because I was like, I spent a lot of money on this. Uh-huh. I'm, gonna, I'm not just gonna throw these out. Uh, the high school ones have never come in use except for my Spanish three notes. Mm. I had a kid trying to study cram for a test one day and I was uh-huh. like, I got just the thing. And here were my final exam notes. 
and they were pretty good. And so they were able to sort of use those and, and get a little help from that. But uh, the thing that I've used the most actually was term papers that I wrote in college. Really? Throwing them under the Elmo, uh-huh. highlighting, this is what the thesis looks like, this is transitions. Those I've used quite a bit in uh-huh. teaching writing in history to my kids. Interesting. Um, those are the thing that I've used more than anything else. You know, I actually, I had a beginning teacher that I was working with last year for BITSA, uh, beginning teacher support program. And um, one of the things that she did for teaching biology, she took her master's thesis um, and had the students break it down in terms of like which elements of the scientific method were detailed in which parts. And then how do you take a full on scientific research paper and write an abstract for it? Um, because that summarizing skill is really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, but she used that as like her intro to the scientific method. I love um, it. It's real world. It's practical. Um, and the other thing that I like about it too is I show them that, that first couple pages because everything we need to explain is there. But then I just sit there and I let it scroll through the next 25 pages <laughs> and through the two or three pages of bibliography. and. They don't complain as much about the one page that you're asking them to write at that point. When they're uh-huh. like, oh, it could be worse. Right. And it will be at some point. So Hopefully. Yeah. Stick with it. That's the idea. Um, okay. So it sounds like you had some really strong, sparky, inspirational teachers. I did. Um, both like within your family, which feels really common for uh, great teachers. That It's like a lineage mm-hmm. of great teaching. And I'm not sure if that's just like the way that you get raised around valuing learning. Yeah. Um, but it seems like a lot of teachers come from a family of teachers. Certainly. And then you also had some really inspirational teachers uh, as a student, right? You mentioned fortunate. your high school history teacher. Um, it's so interesting because my inspirational teacher, like my sparky magic teacher, was my high school biology teacher. And inevitably, I ended up majoring in biology in college and then coming to be a high school biology teacher. And then I kind of got lost in the weeds and taught some earth science and eventually some <laughs> physics and engineering. Yeah, we, get, and we get pulled off track a little bit. Um, but like for me, it was Ms. Newman, um, Lisa Newman, um, although she is, he is now Tim Newman. Um, he transitioned after I graduated, okay. um, which is, you know, classic Catholic school <laughs> thing. Uh, teacher undergoing a uh, gender transition. Um, but he was like the most spectacular, um, inspirational, like vibrant person. Um, one of the things that he, I, I'm going to use he, although I had Ms. Newman yeah. as a female. Um, so. One of the things that he emphasized was, um, like, biology was a science, but really we were there on an adventure together. So everything, this was going through AP biology as 10th graders. um, And it was just like, which part of the adventure are we going on now? And even if you're doing something silly and, like, it wasn't, you could kind of guess, like, uh, feels like we're just looking at slides in a microscope and then writing answers. It's like, no, this is part of the adventure. And sometimes he would come in dressed up as different scientists or come up come in dressed on like he's going on safari yeah. so that this is the part of the adventure where we're going on safari together, uh, like inside the classroom. And that just spoke to me so hard. I was like, I, I could do something with yeah. this. You had the frizz. I had the frizz. Yeah. Yep. You, you were on you we, had the magic school bus. We got bus. on the magic school bus and we rode off together. That's the idea. Yeah. Um, you know, that 
fact that we have that in common, and I know a lot of the people that we teach with have that, that's the biggest indicator to me on those hard days, the thing that I hold on to is the knowledge that I've had kids that have left here to pursue careers as history teachers, mm -hmm. right? And that they come back and they visit and talk to me about that and want to ask questions and stuff. It's a, it's a bigger compliment than they know. Mm -hmm. And it's the thing that sort of keeps me in it in those days and weeks and months that are just can be so tough in this gig. Totally. Um, is okay. No, this is there's a kid and it's working for him. Yeah. And so I, but I've got these kids and I got to give it my best because maybe there's a kid in there that I don't know yet mm -hmm. who's going to be really into this, um, and is enjoying themselves, and and wants to know more and, and and I love that. Yeah, and that's the great thing is like you don't realize which days are really going to spark. Like every once in a while, I'll do something, and I'll end the day and I'm like god that just felt like it tanked like that was I, yeah. I was super awkward they were looking at me like I was crazy um, I think I might have yelled somewhere in the middle like I, I don't really know um, and then you come back and a kid tells you like this one time you admitted like I, you had no idea what you were doing and you told us like I did something wrong and I didn't know what I was doing and you were like that that just made me realize like I could do this too uh, it's like those little tiny things yeah. where you don't realize the impact that you're having until it comes back around. They appreciate the honesty. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and that confession of, I don't know what I'm doing, they need to see that because they don't know either. And when they see that, like, okay, we're just in this boat together, yep. figuring it out as we go, the goal is to learn. It's not to have all the answers. And they need to be able to see that from us. Yeah. Um, and we don't need to be in control all the time. Because you I, can't be. I will say, it helps a lot to establish some credibility that you can solve some problems <laughs> yeah. before you start admitting that you don't know everything. Okay, that's absolutely like, fair. First, first two or three weeks, if you can demonstrate some problem-solving ability, even if you don't have the right answer as yeah. such, uh, at least you can demonstrate the right process or get yourself partway through the process and then explain the metacognition right. of like, oh, I've gotten myself to a weird space here and I don't totally know where I'm gonna go with it. So I feel like I'm gonna put this on pause, do some research and come back in five minutes and try to re-update. Yeah. Um, and I think like that buys you a lot of credibility. Right. You definitely don't want to open with like, no, 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 no. All right, no. so I'm teaching history. Uh, I have not learned about this before. No, that, that, Absolutely. Not the place to start. Yeah. Uh, the first year that I taught physics, I actually had never learned physics. Um, I'd taken a little bit of physics, yep. but I didn't know it very well. And I kept that one pretty well under my hat uh, for the whole year. At the end of the year, then I started talking about like, yeah, so it turns out I really did not know much physics when we started this game. Right. Um, but at that point, I'd built up some credibility about like, well, this guy can at least solve problems. And he might not know the right answer right off the top of his fingers, but he can process through and get us into the right direction. And that's part of the job, is you're gonna be thrown in the places that you're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. My first year here, I was teaching four sections of US history. I took a couple of US history classes in college. Other than that, it was almost all sort of Europe, European and world stuff. Uh -huh. And so I was learning a lot on the fly. and. Trying to build and find the narratives 
that mm. I used to weave the year together mm -hmm. as I was going through. And that piece is so important, having some coherent narrative yeah. so it's not just 180 yeah. random stories or 180 like, oh yeah, now we're gonna do this thing because I, I think it's a standard, so we'll do that. Yeah, and I think too, for me, it's listening to a lot of stand-up comedy mm -hmm. is a great place to start teaching. And that idea of the through line or the narrative mm -hmm. is the same thing in, in comedy as the callback. Yep. Right? There's this thing that we've done. It's still there. You may have forgotten, but I haven't. Mm -hmm. And I get to pull it out. That rings a bell for you. And now you're starting to see things in a new way. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's part of what, what we do sometimes without realizing it. Um, I love that comparison. Because one of my beliefs about teaching is like teaching, you are performing 180 days a year, yep. five hours a day. Right. Like I've got five performances every single day, um, and I'm doing that every day that I'm at school. And in front of an audience that Dude. probably doesn't want to be there. Yep. They would rather be just about anywhere else. Uh huh. Um, and they're all judgy 15-year-olds. Oh, it's just the best. It's the, it's the greatest gig in the world. Yeah. Um, and when you feel like it's working, it's a level of sort of success and confidence that it doesn't last. Mm -hmm. But when you're there, it feels amazing. And you feel like, I'm really doing it. Yep. Mr. Matthews, you, Mr. Huddle, I wish you could see this now. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a great thing to sort of carry you through into the days that are, that are tougher. Totally. Okay, so let's jump into it. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's start with general personality traits um, of a great teacher. Okay. I heard a couple from you. Um, I heard curious. Uh, you talked about, like, yeah, I was just a genuinely curious kid. Yeah. And I think that goes a tremendous way um, in being a teacher. Like, if you're not interested in learning stuff, trying to convince other people, like 30, 35, uninterested 15-year-olds, why right. they should learn stuff just isn't gonna go very well. Um, so I think it's tremendously important to be curious. Um, what else would go on your list? I'm a big believer in um, passion will carry you through, mm -hmm. both for your content and for the kids that you're serving. Mm. Those two things have to be there. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that for me, they cover up all manner of sins mm -hmm. in terms of my deficiencies as a quote-unquote good teacher, mm -hmm. right? All those things that the books say, well, you got to do this and you got to do that. Well, yes. Um, but I think I sort of make do with, I just really love working with kids. Mm -hmm. I love the age group. Um, and, I, and I love my stuff. I love these stories and I love this content and I see the value in it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that comes across to my students that, okay, there must be something here for this guy to love this stuff this much. Mm -hmm. And I think that that passion comes through and that love of the content comes through. Um, and they can tell when it's fake. Yep. Right? I was a terrible econ teacher because mm -hmm. that passion for the numbers and your supply and demand curves, I don't have it. Right. You know, it was fake until you make it. And I, it wasn't great. But with my histories, um, they can see it. And it helps me sort of put it together in a way that's cohesive, in a way that's um, makes sense for them, uh -huh. because I know it inside now. Mm -hmm. And that knowledge of my content and that 
love of my stuff is gonna is gonna carry it through and it's it's infectious in a way totally and you know when I when I talk to folks that are well they're struggling with content or they're struggling with teaching you know that that first question or that first glance when you're watching them is do you really love this stuff mm-hmm. you know and and you know you ask the kids like do you think we love doing this right do we love what we're getting to tell you about and if that's not there then those tend to be the places where the kids are struggling because mm-hmm. that piece is missing and that you know as far as the art of teaching and the magic that's job one yep. is to understand that every one of these kids even the ones that i just i'm not reaching yet or you know the day that they're absent i'm not regretting mm-hmm. it's still a privilege that i get to work with that kid yep I forget that sometimes. I forget that too often. But I had someone, you know, a, a youth pastor point out to me when I just started teaching and I was checking back in and talking to him. And I was like, yeah, some of them are pretty great. And he's like, look, all of them are great. And I remember that sort of sticking with me and, and being really convicting and saying, like, that's absolutely right. You know, those kids that come in and they're comparing parole officers. Uh-huh. That kid's got some issues. Yep. But that's not who they are. Mm-hmm. And I need to be able to give that kid my best um, and try and figure out what's best for that kid mm-hmm. every hour of every day. Um, and to just love that kid and to love what I'm getting to do. And to, I know I'm droning on. No, it's I great. Really, I really do think that so much of this is, look, do you have a passion for the content? Uh-huh. If you're here because you get all of July off mm-hmm. or you're here because the schedule matches up with your kid's school schedule. Um, you've picked the wrong profession. You've done this wrong. Yes. You've chosen poorly, and it's going to be really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Because those hard days are really hard. Uh-huh. And if the passion isn't there to that joy of what we get to do, if that's not there, I don't know how you get through those days. I agree. In this gig. Yeah. Um, so it feels like there's a few pieces there, right? Uh, first, you're separating out the science of teaching from the art of teaching. Right. You mentioned that your first year teaching uh, at the high school of 3600 was really, really hard because all of a sudden the tricks didn't work. Right. And I'd say that's probably the science of teaching, yeah. right? You didn't have your think-pair shares straight or you didn't clearly know what your content objective was or how to let the kids know the content objective. Right. You were doing stuff, you were playing teacher, but you might not have had the tricks or the skills to right. actually do great teaching practices. Right. Um, and we'll get to the science of teaching a little bit later, um, but today we're just gonna focus on the art of teaching. Well, it's a good thing I'm not part of that conversation. We'll, just, <laughs> we'll focus on this one. So within the art of teaching, um, you have this like umbrella of passion, but it right. sounds like you're breaking it down into a few little strands underneath that umbrella. And the first one that you mentioned was like, uh, an umbrella or like a, a strand of passion for your content. And I would describe that using slightly different words, like an energy, an enthusiasm. Like if you're a sparky person, there's this line in um, Roald Dahl's Danny the Champion of the World where he's describing Danny's dad as just a person for whom sparks fly all the time. Like he's a sparky person and I feel like a great teacher needs to be sparky in some way, like sparkly and sparky, just where there, there's an enthusiasm, there's an energy, yeah. there's a passion, you called it for the content, um, where it just matters and you wanna be around the person because they're interesting. 
Right, and I, I think enthusiasm is the right word. And as I was, as I knew I was going to be coming to talk to you, that was the one that really popped up for me. Um, you know, as a history teacher, and you found this with biology also, it's not necessarily everybody's favorite when they first walk in the door, mm-hmm. right? But I think you've just got to expose it in a different way. And for me, the thing that I, I don't know when it clicked, but what I finally figured out in the way that I need to present it is, it's storytelling, right? It's plot and it's narrative and it's challenges and it's resolution. And the, the people that I talk about in my class are characters. Mm-hmm. And if you understand their motivation, what is this person? What is their role? What is their background? What are they trying to achieve? Well, what are they going to do? And these kids, you can figure out how these stories will go. Uh-huh. And history then becomes sort of unlocked because it's not just names and dates and they did this and then they did this. No, it's it's like telling the summary of a movie. Right. It's human motivations it's, and why are people doing the things that they're doing. These are real people doing real things that made sense to them in the time. Uh-huh. And all we're doing is unraveling and unlocking. Uh-huh. And that enthusiasm for these characters, because they're just as flawed and just as fascinating, um, sometimes in incredible ways like we are and like the people that are around us. And when you see these characters for the people that they are and not just their status as historical figure, uh-huh. that enthusiasm is a lot easier to muster. Right. And, you know, that excitement for, you won't believe what this guy did later in life. Uh-huh. Right? You know, Aaron Burr shoots Alexander Hamilton and then he goes off and tries to create an empire out west. But we never tell that story. But it's this fascinating no idea thing about that part. of this guy who is sort of this interesting figure for, you know, Hamilton now or for the milk commercial of years ago. And God, that was a great commercial. It's fantastic, Such right? Good, it's still yeah. a great callback. Amber. And, you know, but he's got these other stories that go along with him. Um, and so many of these figures have that. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing when you're looking at biology. It's OK, but now here's the platypus. Right, it doesn't fit the categories, and it's fascinating because it's a mammal, but it lays eggs, and and it's this thing that just it doesn't. We do a lot of platypus lessons. You know, here. you really ought to. They are, yeah. you know, there's humor in the world, and I want to find it wherever we can get it. Um, <laughs> and so, it's this thing that sort of stands out. Yeah. Right, and it's that standout piece where the enthusiasm really gets. Guys, you're not going to believe this, mm-hmm. and that's fun. And, and the kids sense that. And I feel like that makes such a huge difference because, full disclosure, um, I'm not a big fan of history. Like, probably my least favorite subject area. And I think part of it was because, for me, it was memorization. It was names and dates and, right. like, dead people. And, like, I don't really care which Henry did what. They all sound kind of lousy. <laughs> and it sounds like their life sucked because it was right. 500 years ago and there wasn't electricity. Yeah. Um, or running water, and there was a bunch of disease. Uh, but when you think about it as like human motivations, like now all of a sudden that whole idea of like know your history in case you f- have to repeat it, so lest you have to repeat, I don't know, whatever the phrase is, but don't repeat your history, right. or do repeat the parts you want to, or whatever it is, like the human motivation stuff suddenly makes so much sense. Right. And. You know, for me, it's about getting the kids to understand that this is how you understand the world around you, mm-hmm. which is one of the things I love about 
teaching sophomores, as difficult as they can be at times, mm-hmm. is they are right in this place where as they're getting learner's permits and driver's licenses, they're becoming aware of a wider world around them. Mm. And what I feel like I'm doing, the burden that I've got, is I'm introducing them to that. Okay, yeah, these are stories from 400, 500 years ago, or maybe it's just 100 years ago or 50 years ago, or mm-hmm. some of them are just 38 years ago, and it's like, hey, these are things I remember. Yeah. But at the same time, it's it's new to them, and it's understanding, well, how did the world that I'm going to inherit get to be the way that it is? Mm-hmm. And that idea of history repeating, I had a professor in college, Dr. Hilpold, another fantastic educator who I stole things from, uh, who basically said, look, history doesn't repeat itself. We do it bigger and better every time. He's like, look, World War II killed eight times as many people as World War I, right? But it's this thing that says- Great job, us. Right, way to go. We progress. But it's this way of looking for those patterns, that through line, that Mm -hmm. narrative in history that does keep coming around again and saying, look, you're on this ride. So- get to recognize the twists and the turns and, and enjoy what you can, mm-hmm. you know, and also looking forward to the drops right. that are going to scare the heck out of you and know like we've done this stuff uh-huh. and, and having this bigger, broader perspective of themselves and the world around them. Yeah. You know, and you know, I had the same thing with biology, right? Science in high school wasn't necessarily my favorite, although I was fortunate to have some interesting teachers mm-hmm. who, even kept me from ever just sort of checking out on it. Yep. Dr. Pavelski, same leopard print, spandex pants every day, <laughs> uh, spiked purple hair. Um, he must have been incredible. She was a fabulous woman of about 60. <laughs> and she was awesome. And, you know, it was the content was never going to be my favorite, but I knew that she cared. Yeah. And there was something there for me to say, look, when these kids come in my room, this may not be their thing, and that's fine. I, uh-huh. And I tell them, I'm honest with them. Yep. This doesn't have to be your thing. Uh-huh. But I want you to like it more when you leave than you did when you got here. Yep. You know, the goal is not just for you to learn a bunch of history. Yeah. It's for you to learn an appreciation of what we're doing. And that enthusiasm and that passion, that love for this stuff, I think is really where that comes from. Uh-huh. You know, oh, you learned it the whole time is fantastic. But if all you do is say, well, I checked that box and I'm done and you leave in June and you never want to know anything else, that's disheartening. Yeah. And the hope is that when they leave, there's, a, there's an affinity for it that they didn't know they had or didn't know they could have. Right. And credit where credit is due. I had an outstanding history teacher, too, for one semester of U.S. history, uh, John Calderwood. Um, and he like would stalk around the room telling stories and then acting the stories out and he would play all the different characters and like jump back and forth from one side of the room to the other so he could converse with himself in different uh, character spaces I love it Um, and yeah yeah, I think he spoke like eight languages and spent his summers traveling to various parts of the US for different historical purposes Um, clearly wildly passionate right about that content and that's going to make an impression totally you can't be there nope and leave and say eh, it was nothing right right you're not you're never going to do that yeah it was a show every single day right and i continue to remember it yeah um okay so step one it's helpful to have some energy some enthusiasm some passion for the subject the other piece that it felt like it was under your passion umbrella was like a passion for people And I would argue that breaks into a couple different areas. Like number one, as a teacher, it's a wildly social job. You're interacting with people all the time. 
So it's really, really helpful if you are a pretty charismatic and personable person. Um, if you like get some energy from other people and if you can handle being with other people, I would argue like you may actually be an introvert. Oh, there's no argument. I'm an introvert. Yeah. That's, but I am, as Robin Williams once described it, an intermittent extrovert. Uh-huh. Right? And so it's not all the time and certainly not around what I call real people, which is to say adults. Right. But the energy that I'm going to get in dealing with and being in front of, say, 15 and 16-year-olds is different than if you pop me in front of 35 adults. Mm-hmm. That's way less fun than me. Yeah. Hanging out with the 15-year-olds is the right kind of weird for me uh-huh. um, to have a good time and just enjoy it. Other than that, it's going to be small groups. I don't want to stand up in front of large groups. And, and No, talk, it, it, I can't do it. It, yeah. it drives me nuts. I spoke at graduation a few years back, and it was, it was terrifying until the moment that I got up there and I realized, oh, you, oh no, this is basically what I do all day. Right. You crushed it, though. I, that was an incredible <laughs> graduation speech. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. But hopefully I never have to do it again. I, I'm happy with coming in second uh-huh. every year, and that's perfect for me. <laughs> um, I also, can only dream of that kind of result. Yeah, it's the, it's the title of my autobiography also, so it works. <laughs> Um, but I'd say you are a charismatic, clever, witty, personable person, and that goes a tremendously long way. I'm, I'm quick mm-hmm. in terms of being able to play off of the nonsense that kids come up with or the hijinks that we get up to in class. There's a way to just sort of take it, play with it, and then redirect, and then redirect. back into what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, And so I'm a big fan of the running gag. Yep. That comes up time and time again in class, right? So it's the the joke about some self-deprecating phrase will come up in class. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm always in second place, right? And the joke is, title of my autobiography, The Rob Watson Story, right? And so it's, you know, wildly inadequate, The Rob Watson Story. You know, it's something like, that's a running gag. The Whenever some far-flung place is mentioned, the line in my class has always been, field trip, we'll all go. Uh-huh. And it's all these field trips that we're never going to go on. Um, I love having those running gags. My other favorite is, you know, you get in the notes and I, my ADD will go full blare and it's, we'll follow some through line. I'll get distracted by something. But the game then for me is in front of the kids, how do I take however far afield we've gotten uh-huh. and tie it back into exactly what we're supposed to be doing make your tangent relevant make my tangent relevant how do i own it and Uh some of them work really well but the most fun ones are the ones where it's just really ham-fisted and it doesn't work at all but the kids sort of enjoy watching that process of Uh me squirm and trying to bring it back but it's there's a quickness that goes with it right right and there's a there's an ability to always be paying attention and always listening to what we're doing, what the kids are into um, in that moment, what's resonating. Right. And just, you know, I, I remember a couple years back, um, and this does relate, sitting in a staff meeting and, you know, our, our principal at the time was very into building rapport. Uh-huh. You know, I don't think that's exactly how he put it, but that's essentially what he was getting at. Relationships. Relationships. How do you build those relationships with your kids in your classroom? Which on in one part of me was sitting there sort of frustrated with how is anybody doing this job without doing it? Yep. How could you make it this far uh-huh. a day, a month, you know, a year, decades into this career 
without that rapport, without that relationship. This right. job is awful if you can't form those connections yeah. with your kids. I don't know how anybody could do it, would do it. Yeah. No matter the pay, no matter the summer, there's a reason why that burnout rate early on is so high. Yeah. If you have to be told it's important to make relationships with your kids and to care about them, you're wildly in the wrong place. You should not be here. But at the same time, I, I sort of came up with this phrase and I wrote it on my post-it as the task was write on a post-it what it is you do to, you know, build relationships with kids. And I remember, you know, my little simple quote was embrace the nonsense. Uh-huh. These are silly 15 and 16 year olds. Yep. I can be a silly old man in my 30s and let's have a good time. I'm smart enough to bring it back mm-hmm. and do mm-hmm. what we need to do. And that's a really important piece and a really important caveat that I want to make sure that we focus on is you will do the nonsense, but the nonsense takes you 10 seconds and then it immediately redirects back to the right. core goal. So I, like, I wish went, that I could say it was always only well, just 10 yeah, seconds, yeah, but let's, some of the maybe, jokes maybe are funnier than others. <laughs> maybe it's two minutes, maybe it's 10 seconds. But at the end of the day, the vast majority of your teaching time is content oriented. Right. And so that those 30 seconds, two minutes, whatever, are well-spent time because they engage your student audience and ensure that they are now actually listening to you right. because it's going to be interesting. And they'll take much better notes and they'll remember stuff a lot better, um, but they're remembering the stuff that's relevant to the stories that you're telling about history. They're not just like, oh, yeah, this one time I went to the store and it was like nonsense stories right. about stuff that was important to you. Like you're not telling your old high school football stories or dot, dot, dot. Right. To an extent. I, the, the thing I'll say there is the content comes first and the job, the, the teaching and learning is first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But I also recognize that in my content area, right, as a history teacher, as a historian, the storyteller is part of the story. Totally. And getting them to listen to me is part of the gig. Mm-hmm. And sharing of myself mm-hmm. is a way of saying, look, you guys can open up with me. And I have, I've lived a life. Right. You know, I don't just go back in the closet at night and come out as a robot and talk about dead people the next day. Also. That's actually one of my favorite running gags with a lot of my students who uh, are now sophomores and juniors is they'll see me around campus and be like, oh, Mr. Williams! And it's like, I still exist! Right. I continue to be here right. even though you don't see me daily. Like, it turns out when you walk out, I don't go back into like slump robot mode and await your vision again. I always love those sightings in the wild where they're like, wait, you're a real person. Um, But that effect that I'm a real person and that I'm willing to share sort of share my story and my life with them is part of it. Now, if we do take those tangents that I can't make the connection back, Uh they're very limited. Yep. But it's part of the rapport building yep. as opposed to the content teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the the art piece is the balance between those. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, you know, a while back when my kids were real small, I showed pictures in class as a way uh-huh. of like, oh, man, I've got four minutes to kill at the end. Now, kids then ran with it and were like, that's all we did. And right. that means like, OK, I, f- I failed. Now, I right. knew. And I think other kids in there knew that wasn't all we did. Right. But 
I wasn't balancing well enough there, uh-huh. or I wasn't prefacing well enough, that there's a method to the madness uh-huh. of this is the way that the hijinks and the shenanigans and the nonsense fit in with the goal of the teaching and the learning that we're actually doing. Uh-huh. And, and there's a balance to that, and that's where the art comes in, is this is not just Mr. Watson's story time. It's story time with Mr. Watson, but there's a, there's, there's a, there's a purpose here. Mm-hmm. And that whatever I'm doing has always sort of got this goal of relating with the kids, encouraging the kids, or getting them engaged enough that they'll listen to me talk about the dead people, mm-hmm. especially on the days where, you know, the Holly Smoot Tariff Act, I can only be so engaging, right? <laughs> There's only so much you can do with that when it's literally the the, the set piece for uh, Ben Stein and Ferris Bueller uh-huh. is the Holly Smoot Tariff Act. <laughs> There's only so much you can do there and be like, guys, tariff policy is really exciting. Right? There's a decrease in world trade, and what are we gonna do? And the, anybody, the, the, right? The, the passion only carries so much. And on those days, it's like, look, I've got to, I've got to level into the personality piece uh-huh. more than the content passion. Yeah, but as you mentioned, there's there's a really fine line there mm-hmm. around how much personal is appropriate to share and right. not appropriate to share. And I'm really conscious of trying to walk that fine line so that they know me as a person um, and they know that I'm a real human being um, without it being all about me or without me sharing stuff that would be inappropriate for high schoolers to know. Um, So like, it gets especially tricky in biology when we start talking about genetics. Um, And I am willing to share some of my like family genetic history stuff. Because I think there's something valuable about like encouraging kids to understand, like, look, my family has a history of mental illness. And it took me a long time to figure out that we had a family history of mental illness. And that maybe Aunt Shirley, who gave us little tiny boxes of cereal for Christmas each year, wasn't just kooky. Yeah. Um, but there could have been something else going on there. Uh, and then like, oh, that eating disorder piece that another cousin had and the like wild anxiety, depression, like, oh, I do have a family history of mental illness and it manifests in different ways. But like, I'm willing to share that component, but not necessarily specific pieces that would be direct to me or my immediate family. Right. I feel like if I'm talking about my cousins in New Zealand who they (laughs) never have and never will meet or, and I change names um, and I talk about like a general family history, then that's a-okay to talk genetically. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily get into like my own experience with controversial topics right. like having kids or you know mental illness yeah. or whatever. Um, and it's a tough. It's a fine line, and it's the one that everyone's got to figure out how to walk it. Uh-huh. And at the same time, it's just paying attention to the students that are in front of you. Yeah. Are they more engaged as you're telling the story, or are they using it as an opportunity to check out? Right. Are you able to rally at the end of those stories and get back to the content? Are you able to make that connection or are you just sort of done? Or Mm -hmm. what is the reputation of you that you sort of get the feedback on, you know? And so you've got to be aware of those things and be willing to take that feedback Mm -hmm. um, and adjust as necessary. Yeah. Um, Okay. So 
we talked about passion in terms of energy and enthusiasm. We talked about passion in terms of charisma and personability. Um, we talked about passion in terms of being curious. And uh, another piece there, I think, is like you mentioned being reasonably academically strong and uh, confident and creative. I think you have to be a good creator in order to be a teacher. You are putting on you know, five shows a day, and you got to have something there and be able to problem solve your way out of that bag. Um, that's another kind of key piece. Uh, be a good problem solver. Absolutely. Um, I remember, you know, Mr. Huddle, the guy I was student teaching with at one mm-hmm. point, he said he walked around one day with a with a clicker, you know, a counter yeah, yeah. in his hand. Yep. And every time he had to make a decision, he got asked a question, had to make a decision, he hit it. Ooh. And, and through the process of eight to three as a teacher, uh-huh. how many decisions am I making? How many questions am I answering? And he just sort of kept track that day. And it was it was hundreds. Yeah. Just in the course of one normal, not particularly stressful day. Right. It's 300, 400, 500 decisions that you're making at Evan, you know, throughout the day that are going to impact your day and those kids days. Uh huh. And that is really sort of the art of this is how do I play all of these different things that are going on? There's 35, 36 different personalities in my room. Uh-huh. How am I shepherding them through? Yeah. You know, that, and that's where the creativity, I think, comes through is, okay, I've got these guys that are finishing early. These guys haven't even picked up pencils yet. How do I solve that? Mm-hmm. Maybe today it's going to be sort of the brute force. What are you doing? But how do I creatively build the lesson tomorrow that minimizes that? Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's where you get into the science of teaching. And that's, those are my great inadequacies, right? That's <laughs> that creativity piece of solid lesson planning. And what are my assignments going to look like? That's uh-huh. not necessarily what I do well. Yeah. Um, but I do recognize that the way that I work with those 36, 35 personalities. Uh-huh. That is the part of the creative piece in how do you make this class work right. and function. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's part of the magic is when you see people that can do that and do that well and do that quickly uh-huh. and do it in a way that is fair to the students. Right. Right. That's, and that's a, like you talked about counting decisions, which is such a great case study. Um, but I could almost bet that there's even decisions that he's not recording there because I feel like if students are working on something every five seconds, I'm figuring out who do I walk to next and what am I asking them and how much intervention do they need right now? Or do they just need me to leave them the heck alone because they know exactly what they're doing and just need a quiet space to be able to do it. Absolutely. Um, like, Ooh, it looks like I've got eight kids who appear kind of off, off task Three of them are probably on task, but just appearing off task. Five more are probably off task, but appearing to be paying right. attention. Now, how do I negotiate that? What's the order that I hit them in? Um, you know, and I, it's that creativity piece that has really eluded me in my 15 years doing this. Mm-hmm. Right? You go in and you think like, okay, like I love this stuff, but I got to get them to love it. And there's only so much sort of like, hey, you're thinking like a historian because we're working with primary sources and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not everybody's jam. 
And so it's the same problem you know you and I have discussed before about the difference between say teaching bio mm-hmm. and physics. Right. We're making catapults, and yep. tomorrow it's going to be a ballista, and tomorrow we're dropping a pumpkin, and oh. we're measuring the rate of the fall and how big the splatter is, and it's physics is doing stuff and it's skills. Right. I'm teaching skills all the time, and that was really really easy to be creative with. Right. Whereas, you know, and, and with, say, math, there's real-world applications to a lot of those things uh-huh. that you can jump into. And I think econ, which I didn't do well with when I taught it, but it's got that same sort of real-world buy-in and application, and you're doing stuff. Right. It's easy to find a project that is relevant because anything that yeah. involves things coming in and going out, supply-demand, boom, you're there. Right. Whereas, you know, you come in and you want to do... Henry VIII and his six wives and the Reformation comes to England, uh-huh. you've got to be a little more creative. Right. And, you know, there are places in my curriculum where I've got it and I feel like, okay, I figured that one out. And there are places where it doesn't. And a lot of times what it comes into is having my little backpack of go-to assignments, forms, mm-hmm. that I can take any content and fit into. Yep. Right. Yep. And so it's you're learning the form, but this can be used over and over again. Yeah. Right. In the way that a good chef doesn't know 180 great recipes. Mm-hmm. They know 10 or 15 and they just sort of add some nuance every time. Uh-huh. And I think that's part of the, the art that I'm still working on. Yeah. You know, 15 years in is what are those recipes? What makes them work? And how can I just reuse them every time? Yeah. And one of the challenges that I'm now having is I'm back to teaching biology for the first time in seven or eight years. And all the recipe, the 10 or 15 recipes that I thought I had down and were perfect, they don't translate perfectly from physics back to biology. And biology was my first passion. I still love it. But all of a sudden, I'm feeling a little bit lost because it feels like it's a different skill set. Still skills. I still want to focus on building skills. But there's more language and vocabulary and memorization. Um, Whereas physics is pretty much like if you know force and you know velocity, like boom, we're good for the semester. We're having a good time. Energy. Now let's calculate. The other thing too is the kids have changed. Totally. And that's not not a cop-out and it's not a way out of our own responsibility to say, these are the ones I've got. I need to solve this and figure it out Uh and get them on there. It's, but it's a thing that we need to recognize that things that worked 15, 20 years ago, 25 years ago when I was in high school. 10 years ago. 10 years ago, they don't work anymore. Yeah. Um, their brains have changed uh-huh. with the, you know, their dopamine sort of level that says, look, I scroll and I get a cute little hit of dopamine and I've got it all the time, always. As I scroll through my Snapchat or my, you know, my Insta stories or whatever that's going to be, I've got to do more in terms of the fun story mm-hmm. to try and hit that level. Right. You know, and so they're sort of in this daze that I see more of now. It's not universal, but I see it more now than I did then. And I recognize that I've got to change with my kids. And right. it's my job to pay attention to them and figure out this is working, this isn't, and adjust. Yeah. Um, and that's tough because like the it, that requires a greater level of creativity. The stuff that would have worked ten years ago 
you can't just keep relying on that same direct instruction methodology over and over and over and over right. again unless it's really fine. Right. And I think that um, one of the things that I love about this job, and one of the reasons I'll never refer to it as a real job, uh-huh. is it's different every single time. Yep. It's part of the magic of it, mm-hmm. right? And being a teacher is the fact that I can give the same lesson five times in a day to five different sections of classes, mm-hmm. and they're going to respond to it differently. And the conversations and the questions will be different. Yep. And the same thing is true year to year. And that's one of the things that keeps me on my toes is that I'm not just pulling up the same thing and doing the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Even in the places where it sort of is that. Yeah. It's a totally different experience. You know, right now I've got a first and a second period that could not be more different. Yeah. First period, they're lively. They want to engage. They want to joke around. My second period, I can barely get to talk to me. Uh-huh. And it's okay. Well, what's, what's it going to take? Right. Or are you guys just kind of quiet and it's working for you? You just respond differently. Yeah. Part of the art is figuring that piece out. Uh-huh. I agree. Um, And that kind of builds into that last piece that you were talking about, which is a passion for your students. And that's like being a caring, loving, empathetic individual. Um, And I think that is the part that, like we mentioned, if you can't do that, if you need to be told to care for your students, you're in the wrong place. Um, That just feels like a a no-brainer. But it is a tremendously important part, is like you have to care for people and you have to genuinely like, well, you don't always have to genuinely like your students, but you always have to genuinely love your students. Right. You won't like every kid that comes in. Yeah. Some of them are going to be hard. Some of them are going to be personality conflicts. But you've, like a family member, you're saying, look, I don't like you right now, but I love you always. Uh huh. That was one of my big conversation pieces with my AVID class. Uh, I had them for four years. We started together when they were in ninth grade, Absolutely. and I took them all the way through graduation. And during most of their sophomore and junior years, we had a lot of conversations of like, look, I do not like you. I always, always love you. Right. But right now, I don't like you very much. And here's why. And here's how I think we need to get through this together. Right. You know, and it's as I had a battle with my kid over homework the other day. Uh-huh. You know, my own kid at home. It's, look, you're screaming about reading this book you don't like. But I love you. Uh-huh. And that doesn't change. I don't like this. I don't want to be here right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I'm coming home. Like, I'm not, I'm not just taking off. And the same thing is true with these 155 kids that I get every year. Uh-huh is I love you guys. Sometimes I don't want to be around you. Yep. But I care. And I think that that is what informs that decision-making piece. As you go around making those 300, 400 decisions, Mm -hmm. it's got to be based in that. I love this gig and I love these kids. Uh And what is best for them? Yep. For some kids, it's, look, you had an expectation of getting this done by this time, you had every opportunity. You couldn't do it. The consequence is I'm not going to take it or I'm not going to give you all the credit. Mm-hmm. For another kid that you know a little differently, it's, look, I appreciate that you got this thing done. Yeah. Your situation was different. And I, you know, that equity piece and, you know, versus equality is one of those struggles that we've got to go through uh-huh. in finding a way to keep it fair and 
just always have the kids' best interests at heart and finding a way that for you, you can justify and understand and feel like I made the best decision there that I could. Right. And part of that is knowing what does this kid need right. in order to become the best person that they can be. Right. Um, and that's going to vary. Different kids have different life circumstances and sometimes they need a break and sometimes they need to be held to account on, I know you're capable of it. Give me your best work. Yeah. And that's not to say that like the way to solve those problems or the way to love that kid is, well, I changed the grading scale and I gave no. this kid uh -uh. It was easier. No, it's still proficiency and it's uh -huh. still, it's the encouragement piece and it's the extra time maybe. It's the supports. It's finding what that is. Right. Rather than just going to the, guys, we got too many Ds and Fs, so give every kid 50% for everything. Don't put it in as a zero. Mm -hmm. I had conflict with that. Right. And that came up here years ago. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it in good conscience. Uh -huh. But I found ways of saying, look, but I can support those kids that aren't doing this stuff in other ways that I do feel comfortable with and right. that I think are the right thing for that kid. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we kind of ground through different pieces of like what makes up a great teacher personality. Um, now, if you're willing, I'd like to just kind of like bat back and forth on silly little things that we do in the classroom okay. that make it more fun. Um, you want me to start off? Go for it. Okay. So one of my um, favorite things that happens in my classroom is I have a really good friend that I grew up with uh, who's involved in the Bay Area underground hip-hop community. Uh, his MC name, Dub. His name is MC Dub. Yep, yep. Uh, I've known him for a real long time. And uh, every month or two, uh, he gets invited into class and he does a little hip-hop performance um, about the topic that we're learning in class. So in the last two weeks, he's come in once for physics and he did uh, his physics force club rap about how to solve problems for force. And then he came in for biology and did his mitosis rap about the steps of mitosis. I hear that's uh, a hot one. It's a hot one. It's a good one. It's an old school, old school banger. Um, and he and I bear a striking resemblance to, to one another. Um, we are very close friends. Um, we've been very close friends for a real long time and it's, uh, always a treat for me when MC Dub gets to come in and do a performance. Now, obviously as a professional teacher, um, I have a sense of decorum, so I would never be able to do hip hop in the classroom. That would be beneath my standing kind of improper for somebody serious, like a teacher, um, who probably doesn't get hip hop anyway. Um, but it is nice that I have friends who are able to come in and do something uh, silly and ridiculous like that. It's it's good that he's around whenever you need him. It is. Yeah. It is. It's real nice that I have him on call, and uh, you know he just comes right out of the back door. Yeah. After I walk down to find him in the front office. It's fantastic. He's really late consistently. All the time. Yeah. Keeps keeps getting stuck somewhere on campus, <laughs> so I got to go look for him. Um, so that's one of my favorites. I love it. Uh, for me, it's sort of it does have a name for it, but it's basically you know Mr. Watson's acting theater in which it's sort of informal conversations of historical figures um, that are just kind of ridiculous. Uh -huh. Not the way they would actually talk, but you just work through and like, yeah, you would never address the Pope as, hey, Pope. Uh -huh. But that is the way that every historical figure who has to address the Pope addresses the Pope is, hey, Pope. And he responds, hey, King. And it's the back and forth of that. And I always sort of just ham it up. 
you know, it's not as good as what I think your your history teacher in high school would have done. But it's just sort of you take a bow and let the kids sort of appreciate that they just saw some acting genius um, <laughs> in my inability to act. Uh-huh. And you just have fun with it. It's embracing the nonsense. Uh-huh. Love it. Um, so embracing the nonsense kind of leads into my next one. My next one is laughing. Um, I just feel like I am such a better teacher when I'm laughing. Like when I'm letting things get to me and I'm frustrated and angry, uh, I am a bad teacher. Yes. Um, but when I am laughing with kids, not at what the kid's doing, but like, ah, I see that you've chosen to bring a bunch of uh, spicy hot Cheetos or like red hot Cheetos into class. Like your fingers are red like Elmo. Ha ha. Isn't this fun? Like, you want a Cheeto, Mr. Williams? I sure do. Hit me with a Cheeto and then let's pop them in the back of class so that they're not distracting. Yeah. Um, so I feel like it's like laughing through things or like, oh man, that is not going to work. Like you're trying to make that fall in that direction, but you're pushing it the other way. Nope, that is not going to work. No. Um, like finding the areas to laugh. Absolutely. And I think that's a big one for me too, is just realize that this job and working with this age group is, it's silly. Uh-huh. And you never know what you're going to get. And so you've got to be ready for that. Um, but just have fun with it. You know, I think at one point this week I've, or last week, my new favorite gag, whenever I, I don't pull it out all the time, is the me just sort of giving up mm-hmm. and laying on the floor. And sometimes <laughs> it's me laughing and I just can't keep going and I lay down. And sometimes it's me looking for an answer that they ought to have and don't. And so I just quit and I lay down on my dirty, disgusting floor. I just slowly go down in a heap and they love it. And it's, you know, you pop up pretty quick and get back to it. But it's a, they don't expect it. Uh huh. And I enjoy it. Yep. Slowly but surely, you have sapped the lifeblood out they, of Mr. Watson. Yeah. Um, okay. So my next one is just like selling things. Um, especially like academic tools. You talked about having like those 10 or 15 things. I find that it's super, super helpful um, to ha- to name them and to name them with something fun. So it's not like the sheet with all of the physics equations on it. Like it's not the physics equation sheet, um, but we have one where I we add like every single concept in and include what's the equation for it, what's the units for it, what's the variable for it, what, how to define it. Um, some notes about it, when would you use it or not use it. Um, and instead of calling it like the physics equation sheet, I call it the God sheet because um, it's got everything. Yeah. Or sometimes like the physics everything sheet. So just like selling it, like this is your everything. Yeah. Um, and it's open notes for tests. Like it's got all your cheat sheet on it. Um, so I feel like if you sell it, then all of a sudden it's like, where's your God sheet? Oh, yeah, I do have that. That's yeah. the important thing. Yeah, it's got a cool name. I'm not going to forget that. Right. right? And so absolutely. As so opposed to like, where, where's that grid with uh, seven rows and eight columns? And like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a good one. I, I really enjoy the, the field trip mm-hmm. running gag of we name a place. The idea is that we're all going to go uh, someday. We're, we're, we're going to actually hit all these, but uh, we're never going. And that's the fun thing is uh-huh. that they know after the second or third time, like we're not really going on a field trip to Rome or to Paris 
or to England to celebrate Guy Fox Day, or even the Harvest Market to the Starbucks. <laughs> We're not going on that field trip. I say we will, but I am not taking 35 or 60 kids anywhere like that. Guy- although, although this year, to be fair, I am going with the French teacher and a few others, and we are taking kids to Montreal. Ooh. But this was a terrible idea. Because it's Montreal and Quebec City in February. Ooh. So it's going to be a little cold and I'm not ready. Yeah, not really the season. No, that was a terrible idea. Yeah. Guy Fox Day is fun, though. Lots of fireworks. Fireworks. I did kindergarten and first grade in England. I remember Guy Fox Day. Burning stuff in effigy. Good one. Bonfires all over. Yeah. Them, Look, let's, if we plan it right, there are lots of countries that blow off a lot of fireworks. There you go. Just, you just do the tour. Just do the tour of fireworks. It's like endless winter, but endless firework season. That's, that's right. Um, okay. So my next one is uh, let them do the fun things. So like there is something fun in your content area, in every content area. Let the kids do it. Um, this one in part comes from right now I am coaching kindergarten soccer my son's kindergarten soccer team, and we've had a lot of challenging soccer practices because kindergartners, as you may or may not know, not the most intuitive listeners. Um, so the whole like skills development of like, I'll show you how to do it, now everybody practice it together, now we'll implement it in a game, is like, ha ha, good one. Um, and so my new rule is asking myself two questions. Number one, is it fun? And number two, are they doing? And if I can answer yes to both questions, it is fun, and the kids are doing something, yeah. the students are doing something, then we are good to go. That's a win. And if it happens to hit the content too, then that would be awesome. Um, but mostly, like, is it fun? Are the kids doing something? If I'm talking and they're theoretically listening, they're probably not listening because it's not fun and they're not doing anything. Yeah. Um, for me, it's... That embracing the nonsense sometimes is, and that idea of let the kids do the fun things. Sometimes those are the distractions. Mm -hmm. But I think that I've gotten pretty good at taking the distraction and making it a personality moment that gets them to listen to me in the moments where personality needs to overcome dryness in the content at times, right? Or it's just morale building. To say, can you guys believe that? And it becomes a shared experience. I shouldn't mention student names. You can mentioned, you know, a couple years ago, you know, he basically demanded that I just serve him coffee from my coffee maker in class. And so my response was to sort of disagree with his tone. And he continued. And so I just took out the grounds and I dumped them on his desk. And everybody's sort of like, well, what's Watson going to do? What's, what's, what's this kid going to do? And so he then proceeded to try and eat the coffee grounds. And it was nonsense. And he had to go, but the rest of us, we, and he included, all had a good laugh. And we laughed about it for two years. Yeah. They came back and talked about it. I had another kid who showed up and on a dare tried to eat a packet of Kool-Aid in class. And it was, okay, like, how do you think that's going to go? Good luck with that. Now, he's a kid who's passing his tests with flying colors. He's doing great, um, it's a, but it's a chance for sort of that shared experience. And I think it's one of those things that a lot of people would shy away from. Now, again, if it's all the time or this is just 10, 15, 20 minutes of distraction, that's, that's different. Or if 
you're pressuring the kids to do something or if you're punishing the kids by making them do something. No, 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 no. But when when it's the kid saying, I want to eat that packet of Kool-Aid, well, I don't think it's going to hurt you. Have at it. But you'll have a very dry mouth. Right. Go nuts. Right. You know, now he was a fun one. He was the same kid who at one point he bought at a thrift store an old-fashioned typewriter. Mm. And so for the rest of the year, all of his assignments came back typed on this old-fashioned typewriter. Um, he also, That's a commitment. He, oh, it requires a he, lot of whiting out and retrying. It, it did. And he uh, also committed at one point to getting a Gmail account that he used to pose as me from the future <laughs> to send me emails. Right? And I responded. He's like, don't trust anybody. I'll contact you later. So I responded back and was like, Okay, I'm waiting. Like I'm ready. I'll tell me what I need to know. And but it was fun, and it's a thing where I think if that kid didn't feel comfortable, he wouldn't have engaged in that. Uh huh. And he wouldn't have listened to the other stuff uh-huh. that we were doing. And it becomes a thing that just says, "Look, we're having a good time. We're getting stuff done, but we're gonna have fun along the way." Yeah. And you know, even just the things that go wrong. Yeah. Have fun with it. My favorite part of that gag is the idea that you have switched email accounts in the future so that future you has a different email account than your current email account. Right. Yeah. And, and it's it's me with future in the name of the email address. <laughs> future Watson. Right. And it was, it was <laughs> awesome. And it was fun to play along with. And as soon as I got it, I knew which kid that was from. Uh-huh. But it's part of just engaging them where they're at is a way to discover who they are Uh and understand that personality. Totally. Which then helps me understand, okay, how am I playing this performance? Mm -hmm. I know their personality. What can I do that's going to help sell my content in a way that's going to speak to them differently? Totally. It's all information gathering. Yep. In those nonsense moments. Uh, So that brings me to my next one, um, which is Mr. Williams Draws. Uh, so in physics and in biology, there's a lot of illustration that takes place. Um, you know, drawing different types of cells, drawing scenarios with an elephant being pulled up by a pulley or whatever the situation. Um, and I am a awful artist. Same. Like I have pretty good spatial awareness, um, but my handwriting's not great. And my artistic ability leaves a lot to be desired. And especially for like on the whiteboard or on the computer art, um, I'm trying to bang it out fast because I try to do things live so the right. kids can keep up. Uh, it is rough. And so I feel like I have two options. Either I can pretend that everything's fine and that like this is a skill that I have. Or I can be like, ah, you know, I, I know that my handwriting's not great. I know that my drawing's not great. I'm sorry. And so I go with the th- option number three, which is pretend that I am brilliant at drawing. Absolutely. And uh, it just turns into like, and it's time for another fun episode of Mr. Williams Draws. You know, so over here we have an elephant. You can tell it's an elephant because of its obvious large ears and snout. Uh, what is that called? Trunk? Trunk. It's a trunk. And they're like, I thought that was the tail side. Nope. That is clearly the head. <laughs> Incorrect. And attached to the elephant, we have a pulley system up here. Here's an airplane. It obviously is a Boeing 747 based on the wing shape. Own it and play with it. Uh huh. You know, and I have the same thing where it's draw a map on the board and then sort of stand back, admire it, 
point to it and then just tell the kids England. Right? And they look at it and they're like, that's nothing like England, but you just sort of own it and play with it. Um, and when they're particularly bad, I like to sign it. Oh, that's nice. Just as a way to let them know this is art and uh-huh. I, I own it. <laughs> so Mr. Williams draws and Mr. Watson draws. Yep. Yeah, solid, solid. Yep. Um, and then my last one is what, like, I like to really lean into some of my bad jokes. Like, I'm going to tell a lot of jokes and recognize that like 50% of them are funny for me and maybe not funny for the rest of the students. Uh, And they're like 14 and 15 years old. And so they may not give me the laugh out loud reaction that I am looking for because of the social expectation of like, you know, you're in a classroom and teacher is making some lousy dad joke. Uh, So I've turned it into like, if I tell a bad joke, and nobody laughs, I'll either go with the, like, thank you, thank you so much. Um, or, at, like, at the end, I'll go, like, these are the jokes. <laughs> and eventually it gets decent enough that, like, the kids will start giving you the, these are the jokes. <laughs> See, and that, to me, is usually a sign of that camaraderie being built mm-hmm. where they're in on it. Right. I had a kid yesterday, you know, we're five, six weeks in the school, who I mentioned a place, and, and she, on her own, was like, Field trip, we'll all go. And I was like, yes, we're getting there. Uh huh. It has um, to be an us thing. It has to not be not just thing. a me thing. Right. And, you know, the dad jokes is a privilege of being in our position and who we are. Um, tell the bad jokes and own it. Yep. And I usually tell them, like, it'll get there. The joke takes a minute to travel. You know, especially for the ones that take a little thought, which uh-huh. are my favorite ones, uh-huh. is watching as the joke moves through the room. And the heads sort of come up or the lights go on and they're like, oh, I get it now, right? And so when I explained to them the other day that as we're talking about some some family trees of European royalty, and I explained to them that they're not so much trees as they are bushes. (laughs) And watching as that joke traveled and it hits different kids at different moments is just one of the privileges of being in the front of the room uh-huh. and just sort of letting them in like, okay, this one, it'll take a second to travel, but it'll get there. Classic incest joke. Right. Which probably... As long as you don't label it as a classic incest as joke. As long as you don't... You're safe to make label that Label it that way. Yep. You just run with it. Yeah. Although now that you say it that way, I realize I am bad at this job. Um, <laughs> but it's... But you lean into it and you say, look, are we having a good time? Are we learning stuff? Um, And that having a good time sometimes will cover up the days that don't go so smoothly. Yep. And they'll cover up the places where maybe this isn't perfectly crafted. Uh Uh-huh. But we got where we needed to be Mm because they trusted me. Mm -hmm. And they knew that we were going to have a good time and we're going to get stuff done. Now, if all you're doing is having a good time but you're not getting anything done... That's problem. not working. Yeah. That's a problem. And the kids sense that. Mm-hmm. And they know their time is being wasted and they don't appreciate it. Yep. And they'll let you know. And the same is true on the other hand. Um, if you're just throwing content at them, but they're never having a good time, then your content better be spectacular. Yeah. Now, that's true for some people. Uh-huh. We had a math teacher a few years back who was a fantastic educator. And I remember at one point, they just said, look, math is how I relate to the kids. Mm-hmm. And for most people, 
that would be a big red flag. That's a red flag. But that wasn't how she did it in, say, algebra. Right. Intro class. It was how she was doing it with her advanced kids. And it worked. And it was fantastic. And they left here so well prepared. Mm -hmm. But she recognized, this is me. This is who I am. And her understanding the math was how she related to those kids. Mm -hmm. That was the rapport. And I realized that in an ideal sort of way of looking at school, we'd all say, like, look, our content is also great. This is how we relate to kids. But we're all our own person and we're all our own sort of individual human with our flaws and our positive traits. And the art is how do I take who I am Mm -hmm. and who they are and what it is I'm hoping to accomplish and make that work? And you find the thing that's going to work for you. And I remember, you know, my first year of teaching, they sent me into the guy down the hall's room, AP Gov class. He's a legend, fantastic teacher, fantastic coach. And he called me over. I was like, this is great. I'm glad they have you sitting here. What works for me isn't going to work for you. Uh huh. You've got to go find that thing. Yep. And he was absolutely right. And that's my tip to every student teacher I've ever had is don't just roll in and try and do what I do. Mm. Go watch a bunch of people mm-hmm. and then you steal what works. Yep. That don't smile till Christmas. I can't do it. No, me neither. I can't do it. I'm miserable. They're miserable. I'm smiling day one. It does not work for me. Yeah. There are other people it works for and they should do that. Yeah. Um, but I just, again, am a poor imitation of... Craig Matthews, Bob Huddle, and Paul Hilpold, mm-hmm. and Daniel Krieger. These are teachers and professors that I had, and I'm not any one of them. But I've begged, borrowed, and stole the best things that I found from them that felt like I could do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to work for my 15, 16 year olds. And I'm, I'm going to, as I see things other places, I'm pulling on that. Oh. And I think that it's working. Um, I hope that it's working. The prayer is that it's working every day. Um, uh, I, I think that it's working because for whatever reason, kids want to be in your class year after year after year, including a whole bunch of kids who, for whatever reason, are really passionate about European history and AP European history. So either we've got a teenage population in Novato that just loves the history of Europe or you're doing something right. I hope so. And I hope that whatever it takes to get them in the door, uh, by the time they leave at the end, they like it more than they did when they got there. And they knew, ultimately though, that I cared about them. Yeah. That there was a rapport and there was a affection for them as well as the content. Mm-hmm. And the job of teaching, um, that they mattered more than any of that stuff. That's the hope. And on that positive note, magical teacher Rob Watson, (laughs) history teacher at San Marin High School, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for your magic.